Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone out there is doing great. You seem a little tense. How are <laughs> no, you? I'm excited. Oh, okay. I'm excited. Thanks a lot for asking. We're back here with part two with our friend Bill Thomas of the Mind Over Murder podcast that he does with his friend Kristen Dilly. And you can check out that podcast at mindovermurderpodcast.com. And make sure to check out part one if you want to hear this entire conversation. We do goof off a little bit in the beginning of part one, but it's mostly about the Colonial Parkway murders. And for those who don't know, Bill Thomas's sister Kathleen was one of the first victims of the Colonial Parkway murders. Herself and Rebecca Andowski were murdered on October 12th of 1986. Bill gets into that a little bit more in this conversation. And it's really fascinating to hear Bill get personal about this and how he's taken that tragedy in his life and turned it into his advocacy work that he does with his podcast and with uh, Kristen. And check out mindovermurderpodcast.com for more, and you can subscribe to that wherever you get your podcasts. Bill and Kristen do a great job over there diving very deep into the Colonial Parkway murders cases. So, Bill... Can we talk specifically now about the cases in the Colonial Parkway murders? Can you tell us about the cases and its victims? So with the Colonial Parkway murders, what you have are four double homicides that took place in and around Lover's Lanes near Williamsburg, Virginia from 1986 to 1989. And there are some patterns that emerge. So I'll just give you a little bit of an overview. These are all couples in cars, in isolated rural locations, um, typically seen as lover's lane uh, kind of situations. What's interesting though, is that several of the couples probably are not couples per se. And we'll talk about that as we kind of go through the cases. The first case is October, 1986. My younger sister, Kathy Thomas, who was 27 and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, who was 21, um, are out on a date on a Thursday evening. They go missing uh, that, that Thursday evening. This is near Williamsburg, Virginia. The last place Kathy and Becky are seen is at the College of William and Mary, where Becky is a senior. And um, it appears that Kathy and Becky ended up on the Colonial Parkway, which is this 23 long mile ribbon of land along the York and James rivers near Williamsburg. And it appears that Kathy and Becky went there to be romantic and they don't know exactly what transpired, but Kathy and Becky are found brutally murdered on the following Sunday. So you're looking at about a two and a half day span between the time they went missing on Thursday evening and their bodies are found in my sister's Honda Civic along the York river, um, that following Sunday. And in Kathy and Becky's example, without getting too graphic, they had been strangled with rope and then their throats had been cut, uh, likely from behind. And they were cut from ear to ear. As a matter of fact, Kathy was essentially decapitated and their bodies were then loaded into uh, my sister's Honda Civic 
Becky's in the back seat, kind of on the diagonal. And Kathy's in the, what we used to call the way back when we were kids, you know, that little trunk area. It's a two-door, five-speed Honda Civic. They think the killer or killers drove the car with the bodies inside it from one location along the Colonial Parkway to a second location, which is uh, an overlook called the Cheatham Annex Overlook, which is right there along the, the river. And it appears that um, he or they, I'll go with he just for convenience sake, um, after putting the two women's bodies in the car, made an attempt to set the car on fire using diesel fuel. And then once the diesel fuel appears to have failed to ignite, he ended up pushing the car, which is fairly light, over the edge of the embankment along the York River, and the car rolled down the embankment next to the Colonial Parkway and got caught in underbrush along the water's edge of the York River. And all of this is in a place that overlooks a place called Cheetah Annex, where United States Navy ships are loaded with uh, ammunition, rockets, and even uh, nuclear weapons about a mile or mile and a half in the distance. And so the women's bodies are discovered on Sunday. That is a National Park Service case because that's National Park Service land. And if you are killed in a national park, it uh, becomes an FBI case from, from the word go. Incident number two in what later came to be called the Colonial Parkway murders actually doesn't take place on the Colonial Parkway at all. This is following their murder in October 1986. In September 1987, um, a 14-year-old girl named Robin Edwards and a 21-year-old young man named David Nobling go missing. They had just met that day. So I, I don't think you can really call them a couple. Kathy and Becky were actually a serious monogamous lesbian couple. Um, you can't say that about, um, about Robin Edwards and, and David Nobling. They had met that day, had gone out as a group um, with a couple of uh, younger, uh, a, a cousin and a sibling of, um, of David's. And, uh, but apparently something must have clicked with Robin who enjoyed the company of, of older men. She was only 14, but she was sexually active. And the couple goes missing and David's truck is found at a place called the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, which is on the James River across the river from Newport News and Hampton Roads. There's a long four and a half mile long bridge there. And there's a sandy parking area at the, at the far end of the bridge in Isle of Wight County, which is quite rural. David's Ford Ranger pickup is found with the keys in the ignition, the windshield wipers going on intermittent, the radio on, um, but no people to be found. And uh, it, it's spotted by uh, law enforcement. And then over the next three days, they are looking for these two young people who are missing. And actually, David's father is um, 
searching for them in this ragged island refuge. And they actually discover the two bodies have washed up uh, at the edge of the river. The water was quite rough at this point. This is the river now flowing out towards the Atlantic Ocean. And the two people have been shot in this example. Um, they believe that David was shot in the shoulder with a through and through, and then finished off with a kill shot to the head with a small caliber weapon. And Robin was shot in the head with a, with a small caliber weapon as well. So they, they're missing for three days and their partially clad bodies are found having likely spent three days in the water. And so that's incident number two. Incident number three then is the following April. Now we're up to April, 1988. A young couple are on a first date. And this is what I mean again about not really a couple. A young couple are on a first date. This is Keith Call and Cassandra Sandy Haley, who were college students at what later came to be called Christopher Newport University in Newport News. They are at a college party with a bunch of other young people. They are, I think, 18 and 20 years old. I'm doing this from memory. Um, a number of people see them at the party. They're not spending a lot of time together at the party. Um, he's recently taken a break with his longtime girlfriend. And um, so they've, quote unquote, broken up, at least temporarily. And he has asked out this very pretty young woman, Sandy Haley, uh, from one of his classes. But they don't seem to be spending a lot of time together at the party. She spends time chatting with her friends in one room. He actually spends a fair amount of time that evening at the party in the kitchen, kind of singing the blues to a female friend of his, who's also a friend of his longtime girlfriend, who they're taking a break. They are supposedly leaving the party around 1 or 1.30 a.m., and um, they're trying to make it home to the Grafton area, which is not too far away, maybe 20 minutes away, and um, for a 2 a.m. curfew. Now, Keith had committed to Sandy's parents that he'd have her in by 2 o'clock, and they go missing and are never found at all. Keith's Toyota Celica is found along the Colonial Parkway. So now we're back onto the Colonial Parkway, back in National Park land and back into FBI jurisdiction. Keith's car is found at a half moon pull-off along the York River, about a mile and a half or so from where Kathy and Becky's car was found a year and a half before. They go missing and are never found and are still missing to this day. But there are a couple of things that are very odd about this. Of course, obviously the couple disappear and are never found. Keith's car is found in a way that is very similar to the way Kathy's car was situated along the river at one of these pull-offs. And what seems odd is that they, if they, if they went, if they, if something clicked and they decided to go parking to go to the Colonial Parkway is like, 15 minutes or more out of the way. So it seems like a very unlikely place for them to be located. And the result is this kind of odd mystery. Why is Keith's car on the Colonial Parkway? And at this point, investigators begin to feel like these 
crime scenes, you know, where they find the cars appear to be kind of staged. And then finally, incident number four in the Colonial Parkway murders. Now we're, we move back about a year and a half to Labor Day weekend, 1989. A young couple go missing. And again, we use couple loosely here. Uh, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer go missing along Interstate 64. And this case to me feels less related to the other incidents in the Colonial Parkway murders for reasons I'll explain. So Labor Day weekend, 1989, um, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer are uh, driving from rural Amelia County, Virginia, down to Virginia Beach. And uh, Anna Maria has recently moved in with her boyfriend, some people say fiance, Clint Lauer, who is Daniel's brother. And then Daniel has also decided to move in with them to help them with the rent. They're really struggling a bit. They've decided they want to go out on their own, move down to Virginia Beach. There's a lot more going on down there. A lot of fun stuff going on for young people. But they're struggling with literally burger flipping type jobs and kind of just trying to figure out a way to get together enough money to keep the lights on and the rent paid, which they had struggled with. And uh, Daniel's decided to move in with his brother and his girlfriend. So the two of them are basically traveling companions. Anna and Daniel are not a couple. And this is what I mean about these people are not necessarily couples in a romantic sense. So somehow oddly, they are heading from up near Richmond Amelia County down to Virginia beach and they go missing and their families become very concerned because they are a no show in, uh, in Virginia beach. And Clint is looking for his girlfriend and his brother and the word kind of get, you know, gets out, uh, law enforcement is called. They discover Daniel's kind of beater 1972 Chevrolet Nova along Interstate 64 at a rest stop, but curiously headed in the wrong direction. This is one of those situations where there's mirror image rest stops on either side of a divided highway, two lanes in either direction at that point. The car is found headed westbound on the Interstate 64 corridor. But if they had stopped along the way, they would have stopped at the rest stop on the eastbound side of the road, which, so that seems very odd. All of, uh, Daniel's belongings are in the back seat. He's got, you know, clothes and shoes and other things he's bringing down to the apartment that they're sharing down in Virginia beach. Those things are all in the back seat. The car is operational. It's certainly, um, able to move. It's got plenty of gas and it's in good working order. The car is found as physically far away from the buildings at the rest stop as you could possibly be. And this is way before they had security cameras at these rest stops. So there's no video or anything like that. And the, the couple's nowhere to be found once again. And it's not until six weeks later that hunters who are uh, hunting turkey, um, that fall. So now we're into mid October, 
discover a blanket off an old logging road on this hunt, hunting preserve. And underneath it are two very badly decomposed bodies. It had been an extremely wet, hot fall that year. And the bodies are very badly decomposed and basically just bones and clothing left. They've been disturbed by animals and, and so on. They had a terrible time at even figuring out cause of death by the, for these two young people. Finally, they sent the remains to the Smithsonian Institute and they did some analysis and they discovered what they thought were like nick marks on her hand, Anna's hand. Um, they thought they might be defensive wounds, like if you held up your hand to shield yourself from a knife or something like that. So they're not 100% certain how the couple died, but they're found in the woods under this blanket, which was taken from Daniel's car. And in this particular example, six to $800 is missing. Daniel had done a bunch of painting jobs with his father, and he had picked up some of that money from the odd jobs that they'd done, uh, which was going to be helping them get back on their feet financially. Uh, down in Virginia Beach. This particular incident to me feels very different from the other incidents in the Colonial Parkway murders in that there's no water, there's no attempt to place bodies, uh, dead bodies into bodies of water. There's what Jim Clemente calls a undoing aspect when they put the, the two bodies laying side by side, face under a blanket. It, there's almost like a funeral aspect to it or a respect or regret aspect is what Jim and some of the FBI profilers have said to us. That one feels very different. And then when you mix in the, I mean, there's, there's missing money. Her, her wallet is missing. Um, she actually had two wallets. Her wallets are missing with a small amount of cash and then his wallet with six to $800, which is a lot of money in 1989. It's still a lot of money now. That money is never found. And so that, but that one feels very different from the other Colonial Parkway murders. The name, the Colonial Parkway murders is actually created later by the media. And I think it's when we get to about incident number three, call Haley, where the, car is found, where Keith's car is found along the Colonial Parkway, they begin to refer to these as the Colonial Parkway murders. So interestingly, two of the cases, the ones that happened inside the National Park are FBI cases. And then the two incidents um, that happened outside the Colonial Parkway, that's Edwards Knobling at the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, and the Interstate 64 case, um, Phelps Lauer, those are handled by Virginia State Police offices. And then just to make it a little more complicated, they're handled by separate Virginia State Police offices. So the cases are linked. And then we've asked repeatedly, um, is there anything in the forensics that links the so-called Colonial Parkway murders? And the answer is still no. So circumstantially, they're similar, but in terms of the science, nothing says this is the same killer or killers. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So then who connected the the cases originally, I guess? Well, the FBI and the Virginia State Police discussed the idea that they could be related and they began to think they might have a serial killer on their hands and they still think that's a possibility. I mean, one of the things one of the senior agents said to me several years back was lover's lane homicides are rare. Couples homicides are rare. Um, It would be extremely unusual to have four double homicides. It's really actually a three-year period from October 1986 to uh, September 1989 to have that many homicides in a very similar fashion all occur. And we're not talking about, you know, Chicago or New York city or Los Angeles or some other major Metro here. This is, I mean, there are cities there, but it's not that built up. And then of course, most of what's happening here are these are sort of in and around Williamsburg. The idea that there'd be four double homicides under similar circumstances they said just statistically that seems so odd to them they're convinced there must be a relationship between at least some of these double homicides in the so-called colonial parkway murders and i'm curious about uh something and i don't believe we've asked you this before um your sister was one of the first she was the first victim um and you've said numerous times that she was in a relationship with another woman had she uh publicly had she come out already as gay before that well it depends on how you define publicly lance the it's a good question everybody has to remember when we're talking about this in 2022 we live in a very different world Mm -hmm. back then Uh, Kathy was uh, in the second class to graduate from the United States Naval Academy. So my father, Joe Thomas, my older brother, Richard Thomas, and my younger sister, Kathy Thomas, were the first father, son, daughter graduates of the Naval Academy. So she's in the second class with women at Annapolis. Um, This had never been done before. It's been done since, of course. At that point, this is before don't ask, don't tell. It was actually illegal to be gay or lesbian and be in the service. You could actually end up being sent to Leavenworth in Kansas and thrown in jail for being gay or lesbian. Yeah, that that's I guess that's what I meant by publicly, because I knew she was uh, serving in the military. And right. I there was that, you know, it <laughs> like it was illegal. So go on. Sorry. No, no, you're you know, you're totally on the right track. So Kathy was out to her family and her friends and she had just left the Navy five months before her murder. And this actually may be significant. We now think that it's quite possible that Kathy and Becky's murder is tied into my sister's Naval service. That seems like a very distinct possibility. And so 
the fact that she had just gotten out of the Navy five months before and was just beginning to kind of quietly be a bit more public about the fact that she was a lesbian and that she had met and fallen in love with this woman and that they were beginning to live their lives in a more open way. And of course, when, you know, when I talk to young people, college audiences and that sort of thing, they, you know, they look at me like, what are you talking about? But this was a very different era. This is 35 years ago, the military conservative area, tons and tons of military in that part of Virginia. And, you know, a lesbian couple wouldn't be something that would be public. You know, if, if for instance, if Kathy and Becky went out to grab a bite to eat, which is one of the theories about the case, um, they, if they were in a restaurant, they wouldn't, there wouldn't be any public display of affection between a gay couple. I mean, you'd be headed for trouble, you know? And I know when I talk to young people, they, they think I'm crazy, but this is how it was back then. It's not that long ago, but things were very different. Bill, I'm curious, have you developed your own profile of the killer or killers? I know that, um, that you've worked with some profilers. I, uh, I know that there's a sort of a profile that's been written out there by Steven Spingola. So I'm, I'm just, uh, just curious what you think about, um, the profiles that are out there and have you developed anything on your own to add to these or anything? Well, one of the things that's very interesting and a bit sad about the Colonial Parkway murders, there's a very, very strong possibility that this person or persons is law enforcement. And that's been part of the mix from the very beginning. Some people think that, oh, they developed this idea of um, a law enforcement figure stopping these couples or, or rolling up on these couples while they're stopped and in engaging with them and then, you know, ending up killing them in some sort of hate crime or, or, or what have you, or lashing out at, at couples. The, that theory wasn't developed later. As a matter of fact, a few days after my sister had died, we met with the agents from the FBI office in Boston at my parents' house up in Lowell, Massachusetts. And I remember sitting at my parents' dining room table and the agents were walking us through what they knew, which was, you know, early stages of the investigation. The other murders hadn't taken place yet. But one of the things they said, which is very striking, was they said, we believe your sister and Ms. Dowski were approached by an authority figure. And I said, I'm sorry, we're confused. What's an authority figure? And it, this is interesting because now I've gotten to know some FBI agents pretty well. They were clearly uncomfortable. And they sort of hemmed and hawed, which is unusual because FBI agents are usually pretty polished and they seem to have an answer for everything, if they're willing to answer the question at all. And they sort of hemmed and hawed and I could tell they were not comfortable, but then they kicked it back in gear and they said, well, when we say authority figure, we mean someone in law enforcement or someone presenting as such. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a cop but it could be someone who appears to be an authority figure, a law enforcement officer. And you have to think about the fact that there are dozens of different agencies 
in that area. The CIA has a training camp just down the road along the Colonial Parkway camp called Camp Perry. And they have their own security there. And there are town, county, state, and multiple federal agencies, all of whom use the Colonial Parkway as kind of a cut through to get to their various locations. So there's literally dozens of different agencies that could present as law enforcement to, let's say, Kathy and Becky or one of these other couples, if they were stopped and parked and a car rolled up on them and a person began to engage with them. So one of the things that's part of the profiling that's been done over the years is the idea that this person actually could be law enforcement, active duty, or an imposter. And are there any um, other unsolved or solved homicides where the method of the execution is similar to the ones that occurred in the Colonial Parkway murders? There are some. Well, there are two other murders that took place right at the same time as the disappearance of Keith Call and Cassandra Haley. That's incident number three um, in the Colonial Parkway murders series. There was a, a the murder of a young guy named Brian Pettinger and the murder of a young woman named Lori Ann Powell. These are separate incidents. These two people both worked together at a security company called Liberty Security. And several of the people that are associated with this small security company, Liberty Security, have been persons of interest in the Colonial Parkway murders. So Brian Pettinger and Lori Ann Powell were both brutally murdered stabbed and their bodies were dumped in rivers. So they're very similar in many ways to the Colonial Parkway murders. And then we have this Liberty Security connection. And then the Liberty Security connection extends further into the Colonial Parkway murders in that uh, Robin Edwards, our 14-year-old victim, her mother, Bonnie, worked in the office of Liberty Security. And then Cassandra Haley was the young woman who disappeared with Keith Call on that first date we talked about. Sandy's sister, Terry Haley, who's a former Newport News police officer herself, she dated a guy who also did some moonlighting at Liberty Security. So at this point now, we have four murders of six young people all of whom have either a direct connection to Liberty Security, that is Brian Pettinger and Lorianne Powell, both of whom work there, and then two people from the Colonial Parkway murders that have kind of a dotted line connection to this company called Liberty Security. So that's one of those really curious things. I can't tell you that the murder of, of Lorianne Powell and Brian Pettinger murders are necessarily related to the Colonial Parkway murders, but they sure feel similar, even though they're not couples and they weren't killed at the same time. That's right. And then uh, was the owner of Liberty Security? He was um, he had written a letter that uh, sort of implicated himself. Yeah, this guy passed away recently. His name is Ron Little, and he's mentioned frequently as potential suspect in the Colonial Parkway murders. 
Um, Little was a uh, from New Zealand and was involved in a number of criminal endeavors in New Zealand, had relocated to the United States, met and married a woman in California. That relationship broke up shortly before he moved to Virginia. He ended up working for Liberty Security and a man named John Knight Hawthorne, who had owned the company, and supposedly little purchased Liberty Security after working there from John Knight Hawthorne, although I actually now believe that it's possible that was a, was a straw man sale. In other words, it wasn't actually a sale. It was just, you know, on paper only. But Little himself then um, supposedly purchased Liberty Security. Now, ultimately, as you mentioned, Tim, Little inserted himself in the investigations of Lorianne Powell and Brian Pettinger in a very public way. He ended up sending letters out to all sorts of media people, political figures, the president of the United States, it was President Bush back then, basically complaining that he was being harassed by the FBI and the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and that uh, he knew who had committed the Colonial Parkway murders and he was going to help prove it. Interestingly, he ended up being deported back to his native New Zealand in August 1989, which is maybe coincidence, I don't know. The Colonial Parkway murders appear to stop right around the time that Ron Little is deported back to New Zealand. Um, he would have been gone actually just before the murder of um, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, which is incident number four. And that's the one I think is least likely to be related to the other so-called colonial parkway murders, but Little's back in New Zealand by August, 1989. And he passed away uh, this past Christmas day and his family has reached out to me with information that they believe their father could actually be involved in the colonial parkway murders. It's he never called it that, but remember that's a media creation but he did say to his family repeatedly that he was involved in a series of unsolved murders in Virginia. He doesn't say Kathy Thomas. He doesn't say Rebecca Dowski. He doesn't say, um, you know, anything about colonial parkway murders, but he talked about Liberty security and he claimed that um, the murders of Brian Pettinger and Lorianne Powell were, were, were related to them discovering wrongdoing um at liberty security well that is pretty wild yeah i'd like to hear more about um what his kids had to say yeah it's very very interesting so uh, that developed over the over the months of december and january in december and january then what developed was a a series of contacts with Ron Little's family in New Zealand and here in the United States. He's this very interesting guy. He's clearly a criminal. He comes from a criminal family. He was involved in a drug dealing and uh, meth manufacture and distribution, car theft. I mean, there are rumors within his own family that he actually murdered a man when he was uh, a younger uh, guy and 
there's apparently a videotape from about 10 years ago of Little and other individuals torturing a man, but somehow he's managed to escape charges on a number of um, offenses in New Zealand. He has spent time behind bars, but not as much as time as you would think, given his extensive criminal history. It's very interesting. Um, but his family, I ended up talking to three of his grown kids uh, in New Zealand. And then I tracked down two of his grown children here in the United States and particularly the New Zealand contingent. Um, they're convinced that their father was involved in, uh, in a series of unsolved homicides um, here in the United States. And I'd never had any contact with these people. They reached out to me. Um, they originally reached out to me around December 1st. And after he died on Christmas day from a recurrence of cancer that he had had some years ago, then the kind of the floodgates opened up. And I, I think they were afraid of him before this, understandably, it would appear from his history. After he died, then the family really started speaking plainly about um, what uh, their father had told them over a 35-year period. It was really pretty shocking. And you know, I just remember thinking, what in the world your father ends up telling you that he is involved in all of these unsolved homicides half a world away. I mean, how do you handle that kind of situation? It was been a very interesting uh, couple of months. So that was one of those situations where I was able to take that to the FBI by the end of January. And of course the FBI was complaining because uh, little was dead uh, by that point. And I said, and they said, well, it would have been better if you come to us December 1st. And I said, you got to understand, it's not like the family just contacted me out of the blue and spilled. It took me months to develop some rapport with the members of the family to get them to tell me a little bit more about what their father had told them. And of course, this isn't a conventional family in any way, shape or form. I'm not criticizing, but this guy, Ron Little, had five children by five different women, some of whom he married, some of whom he didn't in two different countries, these people barely know each other. I mean, literally, some of them don't even know each other at all. The New Zealand contingent doesn't know anything about the US contingent. The two kids in the US have never met. So interestingly, one of them said to me, one of the sons said, you actually know more about my family than I do because of the research that I'd done, which is, and it was an interesting conversation to have, not to mention the topic is, we think our father's involved in a series of unsolved homicides in Virginia, which may include your sister's double homicide with a girlfriend. It's, you know, I hadn't anticipated quite that kind of conversation. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. That's pretty wild. Damn. Damn. Does his uh, image match any other description of uh, any other sighting? That, that might be out there? Well, there's no real sighting. Now, right. it's funny, right. little though, even though he's a criminal, does have a long history of police impersonation, though. And in New Zealand and in the U.S., he used to outfit his cars with lights up under the dashboard. 
uh, under the grill, you know, that kind of thing. And he was very big on pulling people over, pretending to be law enforcement. Sometimes he would rob people. He's been alleged to have been involved in, in sexual assaults and murder in New Zealand. So he does check a lot of boxes. And then, of course, we have the curious timing. Ron Little is deported by the FBI and the INS back to New Zealand in August 1989, and the Colonial Parkway murders appear to stop right around the same time. So there's a lot there to unpack. Now, there's also 150 other persons of interest in the Colonial Parkway murders. So it isn't like Ron Little's the only suspect worth looking at, but it was very interesting to have this information flow coming to me, particularly after all these years. And it's only when they knew their father was dying and then when he passed that they were really comfortable enough, I guess is the word I'm looking for, to begin speaking out about what he had told them. And this goes back to when these people were teenagers, you know, um, little was 70, I think when he passed and I'm talking to his offspring to call them kids is sort of ridiculous. Their age is 28 to 48 years old. They're grownups, but the stories that they'd heard and it just once or twice, I could see maybe this is just, uh, the father bragging about his violent past or whatever, but to bring it up over and over and over again in really almost excruciating detail. Um, it was very, very curious. So I ended up, you know, with a 15 page document I sent to the FBI and they followed up immediately. They were very interested. Um, as I said, they, they were annoyed that I hadn't come to them on December 1st. And I pushed back and said, they weren't telling me anything on December 1st, but it was only until the end of January after two months of back and forth thing, long distance calls to New Zealand, trying to figure out what time it is there versus here, texts and emails. And um, they actually sent me some evidence in the mail. I mean, which I turned over to the FBI. Actually, the day before I left for CrimeCon, two FBI agents showed up at my house, unannounced. <laughs> We're in the kitchen and uh, Pamela, my partner, is giving me a haircut. And um, so we're in the kitchen. And I look over and there's a guy knocking at the kitchen door. And I thought it was our UPS man who comes to that door frequently, but I realized, oh, he's got a badge around his neck. And there's a guy standing behind him with an FBI uh, ID. And I realized, oh, this must not be UPS. So this is two, two FBI agents there to pick up evidence that I had received in the mail from New Zealand. That's great. Um, well, two things. Uh, it's not really reasonable for you to expect them to have gone to New Zealand to interview him in like three weeks, like probably not going to jump on it that quickly, but how quickly did they come to your house for that evidence after you told oh, them you really, had it? really quickly? And this is, Oh, okay. Maybe they would have gone to New Zealand right away. Well, the thing is we do have FBI agents in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. I checked all this out, but remember when you're talking about being in another country, then you have to go through local law enforcement. So for example, two FBI agents are just going to go out and talk to 
Ron Little's family, for example, they have to go through New Zealand law enforcement. So there's, um, I do understand this. There's some complicated, you know, back and forth thing with, with law enforcement. Now, in the meantime, I had tracked down his two kids in the United States. And um, um, not that they were thrilled to hear from me, but they did, they, after some cajoling, I guess, they did begin to engage in a dialogue with us. Um, one of my goals was to try to get at least one of the offspring in the United States to agree to provide their DNA, which I knew would be available more quickly than would in information and DNA evidence from the New Zealand family because of the complications of dealing with New Zealand law enforcement and so on. So I was ultimately able to track down both, actually for all five of his kids. And uh, I was able to get um, one of the offspring to um, agree to provide their DNA here in the US. And interestingly, the FBI showed up very quickly again. So there is something going on. The, there's been an acceleration of the pace of um, FBI follow-up. And, and I, so I have to give them credit for that. Interestingly, our friend uh, Catherine Miles has a brand new book out um, on uh, the Shenandoah murders, which is another murder of a lesbian couple, Julie Williams and Lolly Winans. She has a new book out called Trailed. And she's seeing the same pattern in that case in the Shenandoah murders from 1996, also an FBI case because it's in a national park. There seems to be an acceleration of outreach, collection of DNA, um, samples from suspects and potential suspects, uh, uh, persons of interest, or, or, or perhaps they're trying to eliminate some suspects by doing one-to-one -one comparisons with whatever available evidence they have. Kate's noticing a pattern since her book Trailed came out a couple of weeks ago. And I can't tell you why this is happening, but it's a good thing. There seems to be an acceleration in the Colonial Parkway murders and an acceleration in the Shenandoah murders by the FBI. I'm not, it's like some, some smoke signal went up in Washington, D.C., like maybe we should start uh, putting some resources back into these cases. On the topic of books, where's your book? When is that coming out? Well, when I was working on the book, um, I got a lot of feedback. This is a couple of years ago now. I had a book proposal on the Colonial Parkway murders. And the publishers at that time said to me, you're a good writer. We are enjoying the story, but we feel like this would be a better story with a happy ending. I'm not kidding. And I thought, and I thought, well, yeah, if I could help solve the Colonial Parkway murders or tell that story, of course, that would be great, but we're not quite there. And it's interesting that now a couple of years later with the the way true crime has taken off. Here's Kate Miles writing a very successful brand new book trailed all about the Shenandoah murders and that case isn't solved. So I don't know. At this point now, I feel like we may be getting closer than we ever have before. So I don't know, maybe they were right. Maybe we just have to wait till there's a, a happy ending to the Colonial Parkway murders.